Welcome to the Deep Light Podcast from Park City's Presbyterian Church. This is a space for community, healing, hope, and education around topics of rescue and growth. Our prayer for this series is that it illuminates a deeper understanding of struggles within and around us, as well as God's profound love and redemptive light in Jesus Christ. Hi, everyone. My name is Mark Davis. I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Deep Light, which is a ministry of Park City's Presbyterian Church. Um, We're so thankful that you're watching or listening to this podcast, and I just want to welcome you. Um, As always, if you hear something and you would like to have a conversation with someone on our church staff, you just find yourself in a place of needing uh, prayer or encouragement, we would love to uh, come alongside you. You can reach out to us at deeplight at pcpc.org. You'll see that on the screen. And you can uh, reach out to us by email, or you can also call the church offices at 214-224-2500. Today, we're going to go into a topic that can be pretty heavy and pretty dark. Um, We're kind of looking at different aspects of trauma and the ways in which trauma affects us and how we can move to help people who are at all sorts of things. Though the subject we talk about today may not be your specific subject of, of pain, you may have other areas where you feel like, I do connect to some of these things. What we want you to know is you do not have to walk alone. We want to come alongside you and bring you encouragement. Uh, Today, Victor Boutros is going to be with us. Um, Victor and I have known each other a long time and are grateful that they're back in the Dallas area. And he's going to talk a lot about the work that he's been called to, which is really fascinating, uh, needed, and also in an area that's very, very dark um, and probably underexposed. And the church has so much we could offer. So I hope you're encouraged by what you see and are here today. Victor, thank you for taking time to be with us today. It's a great privilege. Well, let's begin. Just tell people what you're doing now, and then I want to back into that and say, how did you get involved in this work? So just describe you, your organization, and then we'll talk about how you kind of got into this place. Yeah. So uh, I run an organization called the Human Trafficking Institute, Mm -hmm. and what we do is we partner with governments around the world Mm -hmm. to help them build specialized enforcement units, teams of police and prosecutors, that are equipped with the specialized skills to go after traffickers. Mm-hmm. And then uh, through that process, we stop traffickers and protect victims. Yeah, in many places around the world. That's right. So tell me how you got into this and kind of the timeline of it. Yeah. Well, uh, in a way, it started here uh, in Dallas where I grew up. Mm-hmm. My parents were from Egypt. They were very intent on giving me and my sister two gifts, faith and education. Mm-hmm. And so I remember uh, going to my uh, church growing up and my mom taking me to the church library and saying, hey, you can check out one book a week. And at about maybe five or six, I started checking out the same book every week, which was this children's biography of this tall, lanky lawyer from Kentucky named Abraham Lincoln, who grew up to lead this epic battle against slavery. And I was very fascinated by that story. Living in Texas, I wondered what would it be like to be alive during that season? Mm. And, uh, and then at the same time, I was reading stories in the scriptures about slavery in Egypt, where both my parents were from. And both of those stories of slavery and freedom really captivated me as a kid. Interesting. And then as I got a little bit older, it sort of felt like, oh, that's, that's really of a bygone era. And I wonder what the great moral struggle of this era is. Mm-hmm. I went to St. Mark's for high school and mm-hmm. thought, well, maybe it's the relevance of Christianity to all of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had some really bright atheist friends at St. Mark's who asked really good questions, including questions about how there could be a really good and all-powerful God if there's so much evil and suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. And for a while, it felt a little bit like that was a game. Like, well, you guys aren't suffering evil. You're actually in the place of great privilege, and you're at a great school with me, and we're having a great experience. And so it felt a little bit like an academic or intellectual game, Mm -hmm. an excuse to not actually believe in God. And then it wasn't until I was in graduate school at Harvard and I started traveling in the developing world with my InterVarsity group, which is a Christian ministry group there, uh, that I started meeting people who were personally having trouble believing that God was good because they themselves were in so much pain. Mm -hmm. And one of the most striking types of pain that I was not expecting, I was expecting to see hunger and homelessness and illness, poverty, Mm -hmm. which we did see. But what I was not expecting was to see people who were literally being coerced into commercial sex or into labor by another human being. 
And I was told this is actually a form of modern slavery. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a horrible thing to say. I thought it was uh, using this very powerful moral term of slavery mm. uh, to a pet issue. And then I, my first exposure to human trafficking was a particular story of an individual girl who was 12 that really altered the course of my life. Mm. Can you talk about that story? Yeah, uh, it was a story involving a 12-year-old girl in rural India. She's from a very poor family. Her family sends her to the big city to get a job and earn money for the family. She finds a job working in a restaurant, basically washing dishes. At the end of the summer, she's got her summer money. She's getting ready to head back home to her family. To do so, she's got to catch a train from Victoria Station in Mumbai, which is one of the busiest train stations in the world. Like a million people a day wow. are rotating through this. this girl? She's 12. 12, yeah, okay. And so she's feeling just totally overwhelmed by the chaos of the train station. A couple of older women see her uh, be feeling so anxious and they say, hey, are you doing okay? And she says, well, I can't find my train. And they said, well, where are you going? She tells them, they said, oh, we're on that same line. We'll show you where it is. She's relieved that these ladies are looking out for her. They get on the train together. They start chatting. They have some tea. It turns out the tea is drugged. Mm. And so this little girl's knocked out cold. And when she wakes up, she finds herself on the third floor of a mm. brothel wow. in the red light district of Mumbai, where these two women have sold her for the equivalent of $250. Yeah. And at that point, she's told by the trafficker, hey, I paid money for you. You're not going to make money for me by servicing my customers. And she says, look, I just want to go home. Yeah. He says, that's not an option for you anymore. And from that point forward, she has a quota of seven to 12 men a day, seven days a week. And wow. that becomes her day-to-day -day reality at the age of 12. Wow. And at that moment, you know, I had been studying at, at Harvard and other universities and you, know, you spend a lot of time on these moral nuances where there is a lot of gray, but this is something that was like, they're so clearly black and white. Like this is so horrifically wrong. And it just made my blood boil. Yeah. How do you do that to a 12 year old girl? Yeah. And for me, it was like, what do we have to do to get her out now? Yeah. I mean, that, so that, that, that was the... Was, when you heard this story, yeah. was this a story that had already happened or yes. was in process of happening? It was a her? story that had, had already happened mm -hmm. and it, it, it made me so angry. Yeah. Uh, I just felt like whatever we have to do, we should get her out now. Mm -hmm. And then I started learning more and discovered that stories like that were replicated across the globe on a massive scale. Yeah. And for me personally, that was actually really unhelpful. Um, in retrospect, I think what happened was almost this, it was like this divided soul experience. It was like this tug of war between my heart and my head. Mm -hmm. My heart was experiencing the, the sort of heat of moral urgency, like mm -hmm. we have to get her out now. Mm -hmm. And my head was saying, you can't draw near to this. This mm -hmm. is like getting too close to a fire that you can't put out. You're gonna get burned, you've gotta back away. Mm -hmm. and. That being in that sort of tension is a, just a very painful place to be. Mm. And for a while, I didn't want to hear from any trafficking you know, organizations because in my head, I was saying, I know you've given your life to do this work, but I don't think that whatever you're doing is going to do anything more than be a drop in the ocean. Like yeah. it's not really going to make a difference. Yeah. And uh, yet for some reason, really probably for the only time in my life, I felt this very clear sense of calling from God that this is what I was supposed to do. And so by that time, I was in a graduate program at Oxford in England, and I left that program early to go to law school for the purpose of being equipped with the professional skills I would need to be effective in this space. And, and that little girl really changed the course of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about this gap that you really graphically described in your own heart mm. and mind. I want to know, because I think somebody hears the story, mm. and I've heard that story before because I've heard you tell it, mm. and my blood boils, yeah. my eyes get moist, yeah. I don't want to hear it again. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I know, because I know enough that this is happening right now all over the world too. But what was the timeline for you, and what were the days like for you as you were seeking to understand what God wanted you to do with the burden you were feeling? and the tension of, I don't think it's gonna make a difference. Because yeah. people right now listening to this, I hope they have compassion for what they've heard, yeah. but in some other part of their life, if it's not this particular issue, they're seeing an element of brokenness, of darkness, of evil, and they're overwhelmed by it too. But yeah. solutions seem to be so far away, 
or they just won't make much of a difference. So nothing happens. So yeah. how did it move from this has to change now to I don't think anything that anybody's doing is really working to I've got to change the course of my life now in order yeah. to make a difference. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, I it, it wasn't like I describe it now uh, in a way that I think is clear. And I've had other people as I've shared some of that go, mm -hmm. oh, you just described exactly how I feel when uh -huh. I think and, and hear about trafficking. And, um, and it's almost like it gives them permission to understand how they're feeling because mm -hmm. that divided soul experience is very unique. And it's very painful. Mm -hmm. And for me, there's a sense of, well, God is a God of compassion. And compassion literally means to, to suffer with. We mm -hmm. talk about the passion or suffering of Christ, mm -hmm. passio cum, or the two Latin roots. And so we're, I think that because we're made in God's image, we're actually drawn to people who are suffering for the purpose of helping them out of that suffering. Yeah. But if we start to really believe at an action-guiding level that there is nothing that I can meaningfully do to change that suffering, that's when we start to we start to feel like we've got to back away. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like that that sense of that the the moral urgency that I felt was like a beach ball. And my head was saying, don't let that beach ball surface because it's gonna hurt too much. And so mm -hmm. you've got to just keep that, mm -hmm. keep that beach ball under the surface. Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of work to yeah. keep that under the surface. You gotta avoid hearing stories like that. Mm -hmm. It's just too painful. Mm -hmm. And at the time, there's just a somewhat of a vague sense of like, well, why is God allowing this to happen? This is exactly the same question that my atheist friends at St. Mark's and, and at college were asking, mm -hmm. like, well, wh why would a good God allow that? Right. And I think the big shift for me was moving from the question, where is God when this 12-year-old girl is stuck in the brothel, mm -hmm. to where are God's people? Mm. Because we know where God is. God sees this. He loves her far. He, he has known her from the dawn of time. Mm -hmm. He knows the number of hairs on her head. Mm -hmm. uh, and he is with her, and he's a God of compassion who mm -hmm. suffers with her. He's the, I mean, this is Christianity is the only religion mm -hmm. that talks about a God that actually knows suffering from the inside. Mm -hmm. God knows that, and he cares, and it, and it breaks his heart, and he's a God of rescue. But like every other priority, he actually doesn't need us to share the gospel. He could write it on the sky. He could... He could proclaim it in a, in a miraculous way, but in sh instead, he chooses to use his people. Mm -hmm. And uh, Paul, this was very meaningful to me as well, says, look, we are, we are Christ's ambassadors, mm -hmm. as though he were making his appeal to the world through us. Mm -hmm. And an ambassador is a kind of agent that operates on behalf of the principle. In this case, it's God who's working through his people. And he gives us the great dignity of being of use in his kingdom, even though he doesn't need us to do that, mm -hmm. but he gives us the joy of doing that. And to me, I, uh, I remember when, uh, when my son was very small, he was about four years old, and I was making a desk for my daughter. And uh, he said, hey, dad, can I, can I help you put the desk together? And in my head, I'm doing the math. I'm like, okay, this just went from like a 45-minute project yeah. to a two-hour project. Right. And I was like, absolutely, let's do it. And he can't, you know, nail in and he nails cleanly. And so, but it's, it was just that we got to hang out for two hours mm -hmm. and he got to feel like, hey, every time Eva sits at her desk, she's going to know that I got, I helped her. I helped put this together. And that's the joy that we get in participating in what God is doing in the world. Uh, but at the time, there was an element of faith of like, I genuinely sense that God is calling me to this, even though I don't see an obvious path of mm -hmm. how God's people are going to change this. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm going to take the next step. It was a light unto my feet. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the entire path blazing yeah. before me. And it's only now, looking back, that I can start to see God's fingerprints and how he has been orchestrating history in a pretty miraculous way mm -hmm. to lead us to a place where, for the first time in history, we could see trafficking decimated at scale in mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. And I look back and I think, oh my gosh, I was this close to missing it because I was backing away from the fire. Yeah. And what a tragedy yeah. to miss out on that. And I thought of the, it's like the little boy with the loaves and fish, right? He could have gone like, well, here's 12,000 people with, you know, you think about the parents and the kids, there's mm -hmm. thousands of people here. Jesus saying, what, you know, what to the disciples, what do you have? I'm not one of the disciples. 
I have five loaves and two fish, like that's obviously not gonna feed all these people. So I'm just gonna keep my mouth shut, which yeah. is what I might've done. But instead he said, I got my lunch. Yeah. And Jesus said, great, I'm gonna take this small act of obedience and turn it into this miraculous work that provides for 12,000 people. And it provided an utterly unforgettable moment for that little boy, right? Mm -hmm. I bet on his deathbed, however old he was when he died, he never forgot that story. He probably told that story the rest of his mm -hmm. life. Here's how Jesus took my little yeah. lunch and, and fed 12,000 people with it. It mm -hmm. was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And I think that to me has been the sense over the last 20 plus years now that God is saying, because you took this little small act of faith that you didn't understand where this was all going, I'm now gonna show you a little bit more of like, how I'm actually transforming the world to bring justice and freedom for millions of people who are in modern slavery. So in a moment, I want you to talk about what you're seeing yeah. in terms of the scale that you talked about that's yeah. bringing you such encouragement and even optimism. Yeah. But I, I love the question um, in response to where is God, where are God's people? Yeah. So when that question came into your mind, mm. what was your answer? And where have you learned God's people are? And what I want to—I want to expect to hear is just thoughts that you have about why the people have responded or haven't responded. And how did the Lord keep you from then just becoming so cynical or discouraged mm. because the need is so great and the body doesn't seem to be responding as it should? Yeah. Well, I started reading the scriptures in a different way. You know, I'd read—I read all these, you know, scriptures about justice and rescue you know we now now we talk about like micah 6 8 a lot about mm -hmm. what you know about uh doing justice and walking humbly with god uh there's this there was this uh passage i think it was in isaiah that god says that he was appalled that there was no one to intervene mm -hmm. and that word appalled had never been used anywhere else in the scripture and i thought oh my gosh is god here's god giving us this this grand commission i mean literally it's the great commission in, in matthew to, to do this incredible mm -hmm. thing that he doesn't need us to do, mm -hmm. but is giving us the dignity of being a part of. And I thought, well, that's, what about the other priorities that God has, including bringing justice? I mean, much of, uh, I mean, if you look at the scriptures, apart from the sin of idolatry, there's almost no sin that is talked about and focused upon in the scriptures as much as the sin of injustice. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I don't know how, but that sort of just, I sort of like missed it. Mm. And then as I began to be exposed to these stories, all of a sudden these scriptures that had just sort of like washed over me my whole life, it was like they came online. And mm. I thought, oh, actually this is incredibly relevant to what God is doing in the world mm -hmm. today. And what, my parents were physicians. And so my mom is an ophthalmologist and she would sometimes go on these medical mission trips to the developing world where there were these patients who had cataracts, mm -hmm. totally debilitating, they can't see, but pretty much a routine surgery for yeah. a, a well-trained ophthalmologist. And I thought, well, huh, the body of Christ doesn't go, man, God is unjust because here's this totally solvable medical problem of cataracts, I wish he would just miraculously deal with this, and if he doesn't do that, he's probably not a very good or a very powerful God. Yeah. It's he's brought up this unique part of the body that has a unique function of ophthalmologists who are called and equipped to go do this, and he does deliver healing through people like my mom. I thought, well, here's this other category of injustice, and he's also equipped, professionally equipped, people in the body of Christ with the specialized gifts to go intervene in a sense, in, a, in, a, in the same way, on an almost routine basis. I have friends in the FBI and prosecutors that I've worked with who that is what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet we're sort of scratching our head as the body of Christ going, oh my gosh, here's this 12 year old girl, it's so sad. Well, I guess I wish there was something that the body of Christ could do about this. And God is going, I'm present, where are my people? Like I'm appalled that there's no one to intervene, but here are these mm -hmm. people to intervene, but have almost no vision of how their skills might be used in the world to accomplish uh, kingdom purposes. And to me, that was incredibly exciting to think, okay, th these people literally, uh, many of my friends, when they when they got the opportunity to be a part of it, it was like they came online. They thought, "This is incredible." I, I've sort of thought that, you know, as a lawyer, for instance, like, how what can I do in the church? Well, I can you know review a a real estate contract or something maybe. And here's my doctor friends, and they're going on medical mission trips. Pretty obvious what they can do in the world. 
but what can I do professionally? Yeah. And I thought, oh, here's this entire, here's this huge need, this huge biblical mandate, and this huge body, part of the body that's that's professionally equipped mm -hmm. to address that, and yet there's just almost no vision of how those are connected. Mm -hmm. And that was very exciting to me to see, like, okay, what if we connected these things? How, how might God actually work through his people to really change the landscape of slavery in the world? I love that word, Paul. You know, mm. and I, I love when God will give you a word straight out of the scriptures that you just are meditating on and mm. chewing on and beginning to see. So as as you begin to see this thing in your own heart and mind yeah. becoming a reality, where did you go with that? Who did you talk to? Who did you go share these thoughts with as they're beginning to bubble inside you? Like, I oh, know I think this is something God's calling me yeah. to. Where'd you go with that? Well, initially I went to my intervarsity group. Uh -huh. And uh, at the time, so I was living in, uh, I, this was when I was at Harvard, so I was living in, in Cambridge in Boston. And at that time, there's a, a very small group of Christians that were gonna have a conference on biblical justice in DC. And I said, man, that's so cool. And my intervarsity group said, hey, we have a little money in our budget. We wanna fund you, you've been praying about this, we wanna fund you to go down to DC on a bus. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so a uh, 14 hour bus ride from Cambridge down to DC. And uh, what year is this? this is late 90s, maybe 98, okay. 99. Yeah. 14 hour bus ride. 14 hour bus ride with stops. And it was, it was, it was unbelievable. It's like, here are these, um, it was also neat because you had practitioners, you had theologians and academics who were thinking about what is, what does biblical justice actually mean, uh, both practically and theologically. And it was like the first time we're like, okay, we're all sitting around the table really trying to connect with what does it mean for God to have a passion for justice and for God's people to share that heart for justice and be his ambassadors in the world to bring about these kingdom goods that mm -hmm. he cares about. And for me, you know, one of the other big passages that I was meditating on was the really the parable of the of the talents mm -hmm. of here is the master who entrusts his servants with talents. And for some reason, I thought talents were just like, in my head, I was like, maybe that's a few bucks. And then I later learned, it's probably the equivalent of like a, a couple million dollars in today's yeah. dollars. So this is like a huge level of trust in your stewards. And I always felt sorry for that third steward mm -hmm. because he was just afraid. Mm -hmm. He was afraid to lose his master's money. He didn't steal it. He didn't go buy a yacht with it. He didn't you know, convert it or use it for bad purposes. He just was afraid to lose it, and so he hid it in the sand. Mm -hmm. And yet the master was so disappointed with that choice. And I thought, well, that's the choice that I was making, backing away from the fire. And I almost missed mm -hmm. the return, which is enter into the joy of your master. Mm -hmm. And I now think that they're just literally there's no investment that we could possibly make on this planet that would have a larger return, I don't care what the multiple is, that would be greater than that return of enter into the joy of your master. Well done, good and faithful center, mm -hmm. servant, enter into the joy of your master. It's like, I don't want to miss out on that joy. And so as I started talking with my community and started meditating on these pieces, those were some of the pieces that started doing some Bible studies on justice, uh, Eventually, when I after I became a lawyer and moved back to Dallas, was in the private sector for a few years, mm -hmm. PCPC mm -hmm. started talking with. At that time, it was Skip Ryan, and mm -hmm. said, hey, "I think I think there's some real stuff going on here." He's like, "Yeah, we got all these lawyers," mm -hmm. and so we started a justice task force here at PCPC, mm -hmm. and then we started traveling, doing some justice mission trips, mm -hmm. and then we eventually uh, Reed Porter and ACT kind mm -hmm. of were launched out of that, mm -hmm. and it was just really neat to see. Okay, the the body of Christ is starting to connect with God's vision. For the for this very specific kind of injustice mm -hmm. of uh, someone abusing their power to take from others the good things that God has given them, the phrase that you used about the joy, mm. you know, so there's a lot of organizations that do a lot of different things, yeah. and, and they do a lot of good. Yeah, for the body of Christ, it's different because we are speaking of our union with Christ. We're speaking of a calling that He has given us, even as He Himself was sent and then receive the greatest injustice of all time in mm. order to give us what we didn't deserve, that's His grace. But enter into the joy, you, know, you kept using that phrase. Yeah. Um, when you began to meditate on that phrase, how did that motivate you? How was that so compelling? And then how have you continued to essentially feed that, you know, or mm. the Spirit feeds that to you? How has that continued to be so powerful in your life? 
I think that has been like one of the greatest, uh, just, I think that's one of the greatest uh, objects of uh, God's goodness that he's given us. Mm -hmm. Like at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Mm -hmm. I mean, why does Jesus humble himself and take the form of a man and endure the indignities of being human and go to the cross? Well, Hebrews says it's for the joy set before him, mm -hmm. he endured the cross. And so joy, it was very clear, is this incredibly special thing. And um, C.S. Lewis was very meaningful to me in my sort mm -hmm. of like uh, spiritual formation. And he also did some really, I mean, just thoughtful work on what, what does it mean to pursue joy? Mm -hmm. And yet I was around a bunch of very high achievers who, whose lives could be described as joyless striving. Mm -hmm. It's joyless striving. Mm -hmm. And actually, what was even more striking to me was some of the people who were the highest achievers, who had actually achieved these very, very unique achievements that very few people achieve, were some of the most depressed and empty people I'd ever met. Mm -hmm. Because it was like, it was a little bit like the greyhounds who actually catch the bunny and realize it's a counterfeit. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's it? Mm -hmm. Like, what's it all for? Mm -hmm. Whether it's, you know, the Tom Brady, famous Tom Brady interview after he sort of wins, I forget, the Super Bowl MVP, and he's like, there's got to be more to this. Mm -hmm. Michael Phelps is winning these gold medals, and he's feeling so low. He's almost ready to end his life. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of, like, I actually got this very, very hard thing that I've been chasing for and that so many people chase after and never get, and I got it. And, and that's it? Yeah. That's it? And Harvard was just a... And the president at Harvard at the time was asked, you know, what's the biggest problem at Harvard? And he said, emptiness. Yeah. And so to me, it's like, well, where does joy come from? Like so many, the culture is really bad mm -hmm. at telling you what's going to bring you joy. It's not fame. It's not elite achievements. Mm -hmm. It's not money. It's not beauty. It's not. So what are the things that actually bring joy? Well, the actual fountain of joy is God himself. So his instruction on where joy comes from is going to be way more useful than anything else out there. And so I think for me, there's a sense of like, somehow, if my heart becomes more like God's heart, I will experience deeper joy. And God cares about that 12-year-old in the brothel. He is not backing away from the fire. He's leaning in. And so even though I don't totally understand it and I'm feeling the pain of a divided soul, I'm going to try and just take the next step in the direction that he's going and not away from the direction that he's going. And I, and I think that's profound because sometimes the thing looks so big, because it is, yeah. that we don't think about the next step and yeah. just the next step. We think yes. about, you know, how's it all going to end? Entering, entering to the joy of your master, I think it's really interesting. We're talking about such a heavy, dark subject. And if somebody turns this on, watches or listens, they're probably not expecting to hear much about joy. And yet that's the thing that compelled you is you're entering into the joy of your master. What is it that delights the heart of my, mm. my master, my king, my savior, my yeah. friend, who's transcendent yeah. beyond, but also very intimate living yeah. inside me. And then that becomes the motivation, which has to continually give us everything we need in order to be sustained in the work that he's called us to do. Because yes. he's with us. He's mm. not apart from it. He's not, I've called you now, it's up to you. He's with us as we yeah. move forward. So talk a little bit about um, how you've seen things progress. Maybe even tell a story yeah. in one of the early days of one of the first ones where you begin to see, okay, this is about to happen. And what were the things that were going on inside of your hearts and minds as you watched this really and truly become an action? Yeah. I mean, it's actually an unbelievable story of what God is doing that almost no one's talking about. And I think for, for me... As I talk to like the Human Trafficking Institute team, as I think about like what is it that I'm called to do, if I could sum it up in a very short way, it's it's the stewardship of tangible hope. Like we actually have seen that for the first time in history, we know what works at decimating modern slavery. And it's tangible hope. Tangible hope is the thing that actually 
draws the divided soul that's being pulled apart by the heart and mind pulling mm -hmm. in these totally different directions, the, the searing heat of moral urgency and the numbing ice of powerlessness mm -hmm. trying to pull the soul apart. The thing that brings that together is, is very tangible hope. Mm -hmm. It can't be like ethereal hallmark hope. It can't mm -hmm. be like Powerball lottery hope, I hope, or it can't be fourth yeah. quarter Hail Mary hope. It's gotta be very tangible hope, the mm -hmm. kind of hope that we really would would bet on that we would give our you know that we would give our lives or resources. The tangible meaning you can see it, you can feel it, you can touch it. Yes. At some level you that can it, understand it. Yes. It means that I think that I really believe, okay, here's something that really will work, mm -hmm. that really is doable, and that could actually protect not just one or two victims, but millions. Yeah. I think that's what I needed. That was what I, that's what I wanted when I was backing away from the fire 25 mm -hmm. years ago, but didn't have. And Kindly, it just didn't exist at the time. Mm -hmm. But what's happened since is actually stunning. There's, these, there's two social transformations that have radically altered the landscape. One is, when I first learned about trafficking in the late 90s, very few countries had meaningful anti-trafficking laws. In fact, the very laws that I use as a federal prosecutor for almost a decade when I was a federal prosecutor at the Justice Department prosecuting human trafficking cases around the U.S., the laws that I used didn't exist until the year 2000. Wow. And we were among the earliest adopters. Mm -hmm. What's what happened since between that time, the year 2000 and today, is we've gone from a small handful of countries having anti-trafficking laws to now almost every country in the world mm. having an anti-trafficking law. So when I'm growing up and I'm reading the stories of Abraham Lincoln and William Wilberforce, we call them abolitionists, what were they abolishing? They, they were creating laws against slavery. It was legal abolition. Mm -hmm. Well, what's happened in the last 20 years is legal abolition has gone global. Now, the challenge is no longer that there aren't good laws in the books. Mm -hmm. The challenge is that those laws are not enforced. Mm -hmm. And then that has led into this sort of second social transformation, which is for a while it felt like, well, who cares if there's laws in the books? Because you could go into a local police station in a place like India, and I could show them undercover video of this 12-year-old girl being offered for commercial sex as a 12-year-old. And they'd kind of look at me like if I walked into the Highland Park Police Department with video of, of Mark Davis going 40 and a 35. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, yes, it's a technical violation, but who cares? That happens all the time. I've got more important things to do. Yeah. And for a while, it was so devastating because it felt like, wow, until there's some kind of spiritual transformation en masse in this you know, billion-plus-person country of India, mm -hmm. nothing's really going to change. But the second social transformation was there started to be these self-interested reasons for governments to care about improving enforcement, not just for moral reasons, but just self-interested reasons. So concretely, the U.S. government in the year 2000 passes a law that creates a new office within the State Department that's required to assign a grade to every country in the world on how well they're combating trafficking. And essentially, if you get a failing grade, you're subject to economic sanctions mm. from the US. So now, all of a sudden, whether this you know, underage, non-voting, poor 12-year-old is stuck in a brothel, goes from the good idea pile to the urgent priority pile, because now, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, it could affect my economic relationship with the U.S. Mm -hmm. So you have these senior leaders in these developing countries who start shouting down the chain of command to police and prosecutors and judges, mm -hmm. you guys have to get this fixed, because this is now a problem for me. Mm -hmm. right? These traffickers are now a roadblock standing between me and the economic objectives I care about. Mm -hmm. So no you know, moral transformation, no spiritual epiphany about the value of this 12-year-old girl, but just in their own economic self-interest, they're starting to drive forward, we have to get this fixed. Yeah. The problem was the people at the bottom of the chain, these police and prosecutors and judges were going, okay, we get it, we're incentivized, but we don't know how. Mm -hmm. like, it's actually pretty specialized. It, it's, it's the equivalent of like, if you and I were thrown into a developing world hospital and handed a scalpel and a mask and said, like my mom, okay, here's a line of cataract patients out the door. Your family's livelihood depends on your ability to do cataract surgery on these line of patients out the door. At that point, genuine, if we were actually in that circumstance, you and me, like right now, it wouldn't matter how smart we are. It wouldn't matter how well-intentioned we are, how much we care about these patients. It wouldn't matter how incentivized we are. You could put a billion dollars on the table. You could threaten our families. We can't do cataract surgery. We don't know how. Mm -hmm. 
And so we realized, oh, until we solve that problem, globally we can pour trillions of dollars into anti-trafficking efforts and see almost no drop in the prevalence of trafficking. But on the other hand, for thousands of years, slavery has flourished in the world. And for the vast majority of that time, it's actually flourished legally. It's been a legally accepted way to exploit people. It's just in the last few hundred years that you have a small handful of countries saying, wait a second, we think this is wrong and we should make it illegal. And those were not foregone conclusions. Those were the epic battles of Wilberforce in the UKs, Lincoln in the US. Right. And now in the last 20 years, that has gone global. And just in the last 10 or 15 years, we've started to see enforcement models that can take those parchment promises of law and make them a painful reality on the ground for traffickers and a life-giving reality for victims. Mm. And as the body of Christ, the tragedy that I was seeing is in a place like Uganda, which is one of the countries that we work, you have the body of Christ making all these really strategic investments in bringing the gospel to Uganda. You had church plants. You had medical missionaries who are coming to Uganda. You had microloans being offered to poor families in Uganda to help with poverty alleviation. You had trafficking aftercare organizations that have incredible trauma therapy staff. And the tragedy that we saw is, well, what happens when all these investments the body of Christ is making, all the people we're sending, what happens when they can't reach the people they're called to serve because those people are walled off mm -hmm. from the gospel? Brian Bravo Wall, what do we do? Mm. Are we gonna have the school administrator or the church pastor take on a trafficker? No, that would be like asking you or me to do cataract surgery. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're equipped to do. But if the Human Trafficking Institute could come in and actually begin to tear down that wall, then there's already a lot of bandwidth to meet those other needs. Mm -hmm. And these investments are too important to be constantly undermined by trafficking. We have, you know, I was on the missions committee at PCPC before mm -hmm. I moved to DC, and we talked about unreached people groups. And it dawned on me, here is a 50 million person unreached people group, trafficking victims, mm -hmm. who are often not in closed countries, but are in open countries like Uganda. And countries where we're already making significant investments, but they just can't reach the people they're called to mm -hmm. serve. And so to me, it was like, oh, this is not only a, an, a good in and of itself, but it's this incredible opportunity for the body of Christ to actually marshal these incredible resources and people who are called and to, to do missions of various kinds to reach these people who are in open countries but can't be reached because of traffickers. And to me, that was an incredibly joyful thing to see come mm -hmm. together. So as you think about today, you know, you've explained a lot about what's happening. What ignites your heart now? Where, yeah. where do you sense, okay, the Lord's moving. These are the things that still need to be in place. This has already developed pretty well but how can we be praying and thinking about what's next? Yeah, well, um, when I left the Justice Department to launch Human Trafficking Institute, uh, it, I was, while I was at DOJ, while I was at the Justice Department, we launched a pilot to try to improve the U.S. federal response to human trafficking. And we launched it in six federal districts. We didn't know how things would go. Two years in, we pulled the data to see what had happened, and it was staggering. Those six pilot districts had convicted more traffickers than the other 88 federal districts combined. Wow. We saw a 114% increase in the number of traffickers charged in the pilot districts compared with 12% wow, in the rest huge. of the country. And in the government, you don't see those kinds of increases. Mm -hmm. Three or 4% increases, people go nuts. So yeah. this was just like mind blowing. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, this is unbelievable. And right around that time, I took a sabbatical to write a book with a friend of mine, Gary Haugen, who mm -hmm. runs an organization called International Justice Mission. And we wrote this book called The Locust Effect, Why the End of Poverty Requires the End of Violence. And as I was in my sort of book bunker working on the book, I came across this information that 93% of the world's trafficking victims are in developing countries. Mm. And to me, I thought, one, that's unbelievable. I mean, what that means is, even if we took the pilot that was so successful at DOJ, and we completely eliminated all the trafficking that exists in the US and Canada and Western Europe and Australia and Japan, we'd still have 93% of the victims out there. 
which means we just can't impact trafficking at scale if we're not impacting traffickers in developing countries. And that's what led me to think, okay, well, what if we took this model that we successfully piloted at the Justice Department to developing countries where 93% of the world's victims are, but they don't have the specialized enforcement expertise or experience to take those laws and make them a reality mm -hmm. and partnered with them to help them do it. And so that was the genesis of the Human Trafficking Institute, was to take that model, partner with developing countries that had good anti-trafficking laws, that had senior leaders who were motivated to improve enforcement, even if it was for self-interested reasons. Mm -hmm. I don't really care why they're motivated, yeah, sure. as long as they're motivated but had almost no access to a model or to the expertise to actually do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's what we do. We're now partnering with these governments to build the specialized enforcement units, teams of police and prosecutors that will go after these traffickers, courts that will fast track the cases so they don't get stuck in a backlog. And then we operate inside the criminal justice system by agreement with the government. And we do skills training for these specialized teams and then we have embedded experts. So I, I hire former FBI agents, former prosecutors who move typically from their home country to, let's say, Uganda. Mm -hmm. And then by agreement, they operate inside their criminal justice system. They're in the DOJ of Uganda working mm -hmm. directly with these police and prosecutors day in and day out on their cases, like residency in medicine, helping them build their skills, solve mm -hmm. case-related case challenges until they can do it on their own. When we first launched this, here in Dallas, I met with some very generous Texas, some, some folks in this church, actually. Mm -hmm. And I was sharing the vision for this. And I had some very thoughtful people who asked the very questions I would have asked if I were on the other side mm -hmm. of the table, which were, how do you know this is even possible? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you know that you'll even get a meeting with the Attorney General of Uganda, much less that they'll enter into an agreement right. that will allow you to embed an expert in their system. How do you know that you can find a prosecutor who will leave their job as a prosecutor and move to Uganda with their family to go do this? How do you even know this is even possible? And the answer was, I don't. Mm -hmm. I, I don't. And some of them said, well, come back to me when you're a little farther along. And others said, for some reason that I personally can't understand, they had this sort of like vision of faith of like, okay, mm -hmm. let's go. And we did find someone, a friend of mine, a very good friend now who, uh, who works for us, Tyler Dunman, who built the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit outside Houston, 15-year prosecutor. And he, this is such a God thing. This is how, I think for me, it was just seeing like, this has been such a faith-building experience. Because as a prosecutor, you can sort of devolve into the delusion that oh, I can outwork any problem that comes my way. Mm -hmm. I may not be the smartest, but I can work it. I can call people. I can figure out how to solve this problem and move these cases forward. But when you're talking about getting the government of Uganda to sign an agreement and allow people inside their criminal justice system and get a prosecutor to leave Very Houston complex. and move, it seems like that's totally beyond. That's mm -hmm. stepping out of the boat. Like mm -hmm. if God doesn't show up, I'm sinking. Yeah. And Tyler and his family had ton, done some mission trips to Uganda with their local church, felt this profound sense of calling to Uganda, mm -hmm. so much so that he's thinking about leaving law altogether just to move and be, do missions work in Uganda. While he's in Uganda, Someone says, hey, you're a human trafficking prosecutor. I think the attorney general is doing some interesting things on trafficking here. He can't get that out of his head. Goes home that night to the hotel, finds the sort of generic email address for the attorney general online, sends him an email saying, hey, I don't expect a response. Don't know if you'll ever read this, but I'm a human trafficking prosecutor in Texas, and I just heard you're doing good work in this. I'm just really glad to hear that. Please, you know, hope you keep up the good work. Uh, just wanted to say thanks for, for the great work you're doing. To his surprise, Attorney General writes back next morning, the actual Attorney wow. General, and says, thanks for your kind note. Don't know if you know our partner, Human Trafficking Institute, but if not, here's their website. He'd never heard of us. Goes to our website, finds this job description that said, that's describing this, I need a highly experienced human trafficking prosecutor who has leadership experience, who can move out to Uganda and lead this work. Long story short, a few months later, he's selling his house and his cars and moving with his wife and three girls to go lead this work. Wow. We set this incredibly aggressive goal. We said, okay, I said, Tyler, I'd love to see a 70% increase in traffickers prosecuted in the first year in Uganda across the entire 50 million person country. Yeah. He said, that's insane. I've never seen anything like that before in 15 <laughs> years. So we debated, is this a moralizing stretch goal or is this like demoralizingly high? Yeah. So we kept it at 70% and then COVID hits mm -hmm. and things get way harder. We've got some months where there's zero cases because of hard government shutdowns. Mm -hmm. 
We did not remove those zeros from the analysis. We pulled the numbers. In the first year, we saw a 235% increase wow. in the traffickers prosecuted. Two years in, 445% increase. Three years in, now over 627% increase in traffickers That's prosecuted. That's amazing. That's loaves and fish math. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that really yeah. is. Like yeah. it's, to me, I was like, I told Tyler, like if you'd gotten 70%, I would have been like, Crazy unbelievable, that. that's yeah. incredible. But this is the, I mean, this is like patting the kid and saying, hey, way to go kid, you fed 5,000 people. It's like, there's a very important missing part of the equation, which is Jesus, mm -hmm. right? Like Jesus is the one who fed 5,000 people, but he did use the loaves and fish that this little kid offered up. And that's what we're doing. We're offering these small loaves and fish of obedience but God, who cares more about these victims than any of us, than their own parents do, mm -hmm. he is actually beginning for the first time in history to start decimating trafficking at scale. He's now put the laws in place around the globe for the first time in history. Mm -hmm. He showed us specialized enforcement methods that we know work. And now he's just taking this, just loaves and fish and blowing it out of the water. So much so that just a couple months ago, the U.S. government, did a comprehensive audit of every 19 different federal agencies over a decade of funding in the anti-trafficking space to figure out where are the highest impact practices that we've seen. Where are we seeing the return on investment? Mm -hmm. And at the top of the list was HTI's work in Uganda. That's this awesome. little tiny nonprofit that got launched a handful of years ago. And to me, it's like, okay, the world is starting to see what God is doing. Yeah. Even the secular God, now of course they're not attributing it to what God is doing. Sure. But they're starting to see that this is what's happening. And to me, that that's an incredibly joyful thing to get to be a part of. I love it. I mean, I'm learning a lot just by the history that you're giving and also the personal ways in which the Lord has stretched you and mm -hmm. continue to give you that vision for it. Let's talk a little bit in our time remaining about the victims. Yeah. So when you talk about those staggering numbers, it's like, wow, thank you, Father. We're praising mm -hmm. you for that. But at the same time, each of those numbers represent you know, a prosecution that's taken place of those who have done heinous things often yes. against 12-year-old little girls. Yeah. What do you know and can what can you share about what happens to the victims? What's yeah. the trauma like in their lives? Yeah. How do they move through the process of being restored? Yeah. You know, I'd love to hear you talk about that for a little bit. Yeah. I think when you when you actually get to spend time with victims, and when I was at DOJ, that was a big part of my job, spent a lot of time with victims, uh, and you get to know them slowly over time. They've been through horrific trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that comes to our minds when we think of the trauma is we think of the violence, we think of the sexual abuse and trauma, which are horrific. But when we get, for many of the victims that I've talked to and the survivors I've talked to, the thing that's actually even deeper than that is just this sense of hopelessness. Mm -hmm. The sense that the horrors of today are going to be the same tomorrow and the day after and the day after with no, no end in sight. I mean, you and me and probably everyone listening to this podcast, if I said, hey, just take, a, take 20 seconds and write down a couple things you're looking forward to. Every one of us would do that. It might be a date night with our spouse. It could be going to see a new movie. It could be a hike or a trip. We've got something that we're looking forward to. Mm -hmm. And here, these survivors, they feel like their life is an unmitigated future of nothing to look forward to except more people using them. Yeah. And that is the thing that is so demoralizing, more so almost even than the, than the, the physical mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. sexual trauma. And so what they're doing is they're also feeling the numbing ice of powerlessness, right? They're feeling that powerlessness. And all of us have felt powerless in some time in our life. There's all, all of us have experienced something where we're like, man, I really want this to happen. And I'm really not able just in my own strength or power to mm -hmm. achieve this. Uh, whether it's the loss of a loved one or a health issue that we just, mm -hmm. no amount of money can fix. We felt that sense of powerlessness. And I felt it in my own personal life. I felt it uh, in the work that we've done, that we're doing. And I think it's in those moments, this is for me the, the truth of like, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Mm -hmm. And it's only when we really understand our weakness. And, if and I think we understand it by experience, not just intellectually understand right. it, but really understand it by actually experiencing it. 
that we kind of can enter into that. And for me, that sense of powerlessness that they experience is, is one of the hardest pieces to, to, uh, to, that's the hardest part of the trauma. Once they are, once we do intervene and get them, separate them from the trafficker, it starts a very tough journey of beginning to recover from that trauma. And it starts a, a very tough process of building trust when mm-hmm. almost everyone they've encountered up to that point is using them to serve themselves and to harm the victim. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that trust building process is really critical. But this is part of the great transformation that I see. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of people, when they hear what I do, they say, oh gosh, that's so, that must be really, really, really emotionally hard. It must mm-hmm. be really, I, I could never do that. It's just be so emotionally too hard. And, I, and for me, I, I honestly feel like, yes, there are days that are emotionally hard, but the dominant note of my life is just seeing God's transformational work in ways that bring incredible joy. Mm-hmm. Because to, we all, I think, despair in our lives of things that we wish would change in ourselves or in family members or in others. And sometimes we feel, am I really changing? Yeah. Is anything really changing? But to see a trafficking victim who goes from sometimes when, in the first moments when they're separated, they have come to believe that the trafficker really is all powerful. I mean, I've, ha- I've had victims who have said, who said, hey, look, you are safe now. Like that trafficker's not, not coming after you. I said, what are you talking about? He is coming after me. You can't protect me. I was like, no, 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 this is the FBI. We're the Justice Department. He controls the FBI and the Justice Department. No, no, there's a federal judge. He can control the federal judge. Mm-hmm. And they've, been, they've experienced such powerlessness mm-hmm. and such power from the trafficker that it's hard for them to imagine that there could be a power greater than the trafficker. And to see someone like that go from moments like that to having the courage to walk into a court, look the trafficker in the eye and say, this is what you did and that was not okay, is such a transformation of courage Mm -hmm. that it's inspiring to Mm -hmm. see. And not every story ends like that. Lots of stories don't. There's lots of of trauma that is just never, it's just Mm -hmm. you can't fully be restored in a sense from that trauma this side of heaven. It's just Mm -hmm. an incredible trauma. And I have, but I have seen these sort of just trophies of grace where, where God has taken someone and brought about, in some ways, just a sort of supernatural transformation in their lives. And to see that kind of transformation and courage that God can bring about for someone who's been through that kind of trauma and hopelessness means that whatever the powerlessness that I'm feeling in my own life, God has the power to change that as well mm. and bring about his purposes in my life just as he has in these survivors' lives. And so it's just every day I get to witness these transformational miracles of individuals and now even of whole whole villages, countries. Mm. And it feels like I was so close to missing it by backing away. And that to me is like, okay, if I can remember that, then when I do have these moments of anxiety of like, oh, how are we going to do this? Or uh, we've had this funding challenge or this or that, it's... Sometimes it's my wife who reminds me and others who remind me of like, hey, let's just remember God's history of faithfulness and how he leads us like a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. But this is his mission that he's accomplishing for those who he has created and known before the dawn of time. And he's just giving you the dignity like I was doing with my son Lawson to be a part of the work that he's doing with him. Yeah. Victor, I love the way you continue to bring it back to him, Mm. you know, from his heart his call, hope in him, mm. his mission. Mm. Um, your abiding relationship with him is very obvious and the mm. radiance of Christ shining through you. I love that. I love how you talk about, I've experienced it personally, mm. the, the powerlessness as yeah. well as professionally. And when you talk about the hope, yeah. um, that's a layer perhaps a lot of people would not know. They just, yeah. they can barely get over or they can't really get over it. They can barely get beyond those seeing mm the physical and sexual abuse that would take place. Mm -hmm. Yet, to just linger for a minute in that Mm. sense of hopelessness, Mm. um, that's that's extremely painful. Mm. One of the things I love about the conversation today is that while it's focused on one particular aspect of evil and trafficking, um, a lot of these things transfer to so many different other places where injustice exists or where hopelessness exists. Somebody could be watching or listening today that is just so overwhelmed by their own sense of despair and hopelessness that yeah. they don't know what to do. And we're offering to them the very same God um, to enter into his life with him 
where he can restore that mm. and restore them in transformative ways. The passion with which you speak is beautiful, mm. but it's because it's genuine and it's mm. from him. Mm. And I can tell the difference. Most people can. Yeah. There is a burden that he's given you that he then met with his power yeah. to overcome the powerlessness. And so many times today you've come back to that statement of, I almost missed it. Yeah. I almost missed it. Yeah. One of my prayers is going to be that those listening and um, or watching can hear the Lord's voice through his spirit and word when they're about to miss it too. Mm. And, or maybe where they have missed it and the mm. Lord's grace to say, hey, come back, look yeah. at this again. Yeah. Because there is so much need in the world yeah. and so much joy to join him as mm. he's called us into that call, yeah. which is pretty remarkable. Is there anything that you wanted to share that you haven't had a chance to share yet about the, the ministry or even let people know how they could get involved if they were yeah. interested in what they've heard? Yeah, for sure. So. Um, the easiest way to get involved is just to go to our website, which is traffickinginstitute.org. Okay. Uh, trafficking, C-K, T-R-A-F-F-I-C-K-I-N-G. Okay. We'll institute. put that in the we'll we'll put put that that show notes. notes. Um, and uh, I would say, I just would say one thing that um, that I've heard from others that has been helpful and, and I, it resonated with me is one of the unique things about trafficking is it, it's that it's a hidden crime. Mm-hmm. And... The tragedy is, of course, the trafficker doesn't want you to see it because he doesn't want anybody to intervene mm-hmm. on behalf of the victims. But in this sort of tragic irony, often the victims also don't want you to see it because mm-hmm. they experience so much shame mm-hmm. about what's happened to them. And so all the human actors in this drama actually are hiding it from view. And that's why there's such an important need for proactive investigation to go out and look for it. Mm-hmm. It's not like a bank robbery where someone raises their hand, yeah. come, there's been a, a crime, come help. Yeah. And so it requires that proactive investigation. But the, the, what that means for the rest of us is, and I absolutely can could put myself in this circumstance, we could hear a podcast like this and maybe maybe for the first time feel feel like real tangible hope. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that seems really doable. Mm-hmm. And it also seems like it really is working and that it really could protect actually millions. Like we could actually have that experience and feel like, yes, I want to be involved. I want to be entering the joy that God is doing. I want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I can allow that beach ball to surface for the first time because I, there's a way for that moral urgency to actually be channeled into kingdom goods. And then just because it's so hidden, we could actually just lose it and forget about it. And mm-hmm. it never comes to mind, maybe for another couple of years until we hear something about trafficking. Mm-hmm. It's so easy. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's sort of the same reason. It's, you know, we're now in January. There's actually Human Trafficking Awareness Month. And um, a lot of people maybe write resolutions or have written resolutions before. And I was doing a little homework on the resolutions. And one of the things that was most striking to me is uh, Most of us who make resolutions have quit the resolutions by January 19th, seven days from now. 91% will have resolutions that we actually don't meet. But to me, I was thinking about, well, what about those nine percenters, right? Like, that's what we all want to be. Like, what is it about the nine percenters? Mm -hmm. Do they they set patty cake goals? Like, what is it that Mm -hmm. actually makes it possible for them to succeed? And there's research on this, and the research is... What they do is they actually aim at achievable habits that over time will achieve the goal. And that's what they do. And they just commit to the habits. Mm-hmm. Left, right, left, right. Yeah. Like a path, right? right. And, and so for, for me, I think one thing that's very helpful is we have a, um, a monthly partner program. It's called Justice Partners. And just a, a very easy thing to do would be to, to go and just become a justice partner, which is a monthly supporter of HCI. And I, even whatever the number is, even if it's a dollar, right? Mm-hmm. No, it's less important what the amount is, but there's just a discipline that comes where, I mean, in Uganda, we're looking at protecting 2.2 million victims over 10 years at the cost of about $13 a victim. Oh, unbelievable. So if we said, okay, $13 a month, I could protect a victim every month for $13. I could sign up, do that today, and I could guarantee myself that when January 2025 comes, that I have a resolution that is advancing God's kingdom, that's allowing access of the gospel to people who would otherwise be unreached. And I have the discipline of every month. I, this is brought before me. It's like the same, for the same reason that I try to, we try to bring the scriptures before us every morning, right? It's, mm-hmm. We actually need the discipline and the habit 
of bringing these truths of the scriptures before us, meditating on them, having them actually dwell in our soul. We can't just do it once a year. We can't do it once every couple of years. It has to be this sort of habit. And, and so that would be my encouragement mm-hmm. is don't worry about the dollar amount, but do pay attention to the habit. Just make a commitment. I'm just going to make a commitment that I'm going to be a justice partner. And in two minutes, I could assure myself that I'll be among the nine percenters next year. Mm-hmm. And I'll have done something that's actually going to bring real joy to me and advance God's kingdom in the world. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's you talked about your wife reminding you of the things that God has done, which is yes. so important. Needs to be a daily reality in our lives. That's a step, though, just the practice of remember, yes. remember, yes. remember. But it's also remembering the brokenness yes. and the evil, or it will dissipate. Yeah. You know, we'll become consumed with so many other things that have such less significance in life. Um, I love that, mm. and I'm grateful for the work that God's mm. called you to, and the story behind it. Mm. I'm really grateful for our time today. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. I hope that you have learned a lot today listening. I know I have. Um, and I'm not sure what is striking you right now. And there's been a lot of great description. I would actually encourage you to listen to it or watch it again. Pay attention to small things that were said with real specific purpose because they're beautiful and they have to do with brokenness. They have to do with hope. They have to do with despair and powerlessness. Whatever you feel, as you watch this, if you want to talk to somebody again, reach out to us at uh, deeplight at pcpc.org. You can also call again, 214-224-2500. And pay attention to the show notes. You can certainly go to the website that Victor shared. Get involved. Listen for the Lord's voice through His Spirit and Word. If you don't know the Lord, you don't know what we even mean when we're talking about that relationship, it would be our delight to show you what the Word of God says about who Christ is and the way in which he came for us. You know, when you speak about going after the darkness, where is it? We've got to go look for it. That's exactly what Christ did. Mm-hmm. And in the Gospel of John, it's one of the early books in the New Testament, the fourth book, there's a question that Christ asked. And it's actually the very first time John records Jesus speaking. And the question was simply to a group of men, what are you seeking? What a great question for all of us to answer. God bless you, and thank you for spending time with us today. Again, Victor, thanks. Thanks. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Deep Light Podcast from Park City's Presbyterian Church. We would love for you to be our guest this Sunday morning as we gather together for worship at 8, 9.30, or 11 a.m. We are located in the Uptown Dallas area at the corner of Oaklawn Avenue and Wycliffe Avenue. To find out more, please visit pcpc.org.